Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. So I'm out here in Montauk. That's the east end. That's literally as far as you can go, the east end of Long Island. You can't go any further. As a matter of fact, they call it the end. And got me thinking, Frank Mundus was out here in Montauk. Now, some of you may know that Frank Mundus was the fisherman that they sort of patterned Quint after in Jaws. By the way, this is the On The Tape podcast. I'm Guy Adami, always joined by Dan Nathan and Danny Moses. This is a special holiday shortened week drop on a Thursday ahead of the all-important, I just like saying that, jobs report on Friday. By the way, on Monday, Danny Moses will be in studio with G Swizz. That's me speaking in the third person. When we do our market call-in show, Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. And we're going to take some questions on this podcast as well. But the whole East End got me thinking, I'm out here, Frank Mundus, obviously Quint was patterned after him in the movie Jaws. And there's a scene in that movie, and by the way, if you don't know who Robert Shaw is, you should watch because he steals every single movie that he's ever been in, including, by the way, The Sting with Paul Newman and Robert Redford. But there's a scene when he's on the boat with Brody and Hooper when they have three barrels in the shark. And Quint says basically to himself, he can't stay down with three barrels in him, not with three barrels. And it got me thinking about the market, quite the opposite, obviously. The market, how does this market stay up with effectively Danny Moses' three barrels? The three barrels being a Fed balance sheet, which, by the way, has dwindled now to below the levels we saw pre-Silicon Valley Bank. That's a good thing, by the way, but the balance sheet is shrinking. An inverted yield curve to the tune of 105 basis points, probably headed more inverted than that. And obviously valuations that don't make a whole hell of a lot of sense in this environment. So this market has remained buoyant above the surface with the three barrels that Quint spoke about. And as I said, you know, I'm a huge Robert Shaw fan. I think even Quint himself would be shaking his head at this market that we find ourselves in on this early July day. Hooper drives the boat, Chief. 
Although I will know that Quint was basically swallowed whole by the shark at the end. Not to be a spoiler from 1976. If you haven't seen it by now, you're never seeing it. But yes, he was literally bitten in half and swallowed, basically. Am I correct, Guy? In the book, Peter Benchley's book came out in 74. And in the book, it was more of a Moby Dick type of thing. If you recall, at the end of Moby Dick, Ahab gets he caught up in all the lines from his harpoons that were in the white whale. And he gets tangled up and he gets dragged down. That's how Jaws ended. But I guess they wanted something a bit more morose in the movie. So they had Quint, to your point, Danny, bitten in half. Not that anybody cares at this point, but in the book, Hooper dies as well. Anyway, back to you. If you think about it in, in those terms, right? Obviously, June, we said at the start of June, because it didn't look like a correction was imminent, nothing. The Fed obviously was indicating pause at that point that it was going to be happening. And so the kind of follow through the chase was on, right? The end of the second quarter chase, same kind of at the beginning of the first quarter when people were, came into the year under positioned, I would say in growth, right? Underweight tech and overweight financial and energy, et cetera. A lot went on in the first half, but once we got to the beginning of June, I wasn't necessarily expecting anything to pull back or self fill higher. But other than the stock market being up, which is a key indicator for a lot of things. And housing. Effect, and housing being up. I could have painted the same scenario with the same information in the first half of the year. If the S&P was at, call it 38, 3,900, I'm not going to say 32 or 3,300. I will say, just going back and reviewing and looking a little bit, earnings for Q1, I think came in a little better on the margin than expected. Margins were a little better than expected. Economic activity was a little better than expected, but nothing to indicate something to me that we're still not experiencing an overall, quote, downturn in growth, let's say. So growth is still slowing. So just the rate of growth slowing is what the bears maybe got wrong, but it's still, no one can tell me a playbook that existed to buy companies at 30 times revenues and whatever level we are. And I go back to the two seminal events of the quarter were obviously the bank failures, the three banks, right? Which everyone, no one knew was coming and then happened. It added half a trillion dollars onto the Fed's balance sheet, which I know guy were back below kind of 8.4 trillion. And then this debt limit, which became an obsession of people that had to learn on the fly on Investopedia what it actually meant. And what did we end up with after the debt limit was a suspension of the debt limit until January 2025. I talked about that ad nauseum. I was kind of being sarcastic at the time, but here you have a guarantee of all deposits in the banking system, right? Implied and a no debt limit. So that means that we can do programs to bail the next thing out. So I, part of it's a continuation of moral hazard and not worrying about valuation. I'm sorry, but I'll always be a bottom up valuation person, and I'm always going to miss things like this. They're not logical. What is logical is the supply and demand. X amount of liquidity trying to find a home. Okay, good on you, whatever. But there's other names I'd rather own than what's But it's worth. funny. So that excess liquidity, where did it find itself in March, April, May, June? It found it right into the stock market and the growthiest stuff, pushing those valuations. Guy, you've said it again and again. What did we see? We literally just saw multiple expansion. Q1 earnings weren't as bad as expected. Q2 or Q1 GDP got revised higher to a 2% annualized sort of growth rate. So for all intents and purposes, when the stock market was trading 3,600 back in October and it felt really bad down more than 20% from its January highs, at that point, we were discounting a much more difficult economic environment. But right now, if you look at those new housing stocks, I'm not, trust me, I'm not getting bullish here, but all I'm saying is that we're recording this, those Fed minutes just came out. All of the Fed voters are basically, that was a hawkish pause. We, we all know that. And so they all are fearful of what's going on in risk assets here because go back to when we started this podcast in 2021, we were all convinced we were in a risk asset bubble that was born of excess liquidity. Feels like we're in that space again 
And we're here with Fed funds at five and a quarter that is about to go higher, right? The upper end of the band is five and a quarter, five to five and a quarter, right? So the upper end of the band is going to be five and a half percent. The last time we had a Fed funds at five and a half percent, you know when that was? Back in like 2006 and seven. It doesn't make sense to me if the only way that the S&P is hovering around 4450 is because of multiple expansion at a time where we are seeing slower growth. And we haven't even talked about what's happened globally because what's gone on with inflation and growth in Europe and what's gone on with the easing that's going on in China, despite really growth that's not materializing, we got all of this rally started six months ago with China's about face on zero COVID. And everyone thought that was going to be this huge tailwind for growth. So it's not materializing, but we have stocks and we have housing that don't make any sense where, given where I think inflation is going and where rates are right now. It's interesting. We spend a lot of time talking about the things that we've collectively gotten wrong. And I can speak for myself on this one. Obviously, the broader market, I would say, since late December, early January has confounded me. I think we're pretty honest about that. I think that's probably holds true for a lot of people. Individual names without question. Some of these high valuation, high growth names have gone much higher than I thought possible in this environment. So clearly, directionally on a lot of things wrong without question. We've gotten some things right as well. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. You mentioned the home builders, Dan, and I think a lot of people find themselves equally befuddled with the move in the home builders. But what we've been saying on this show for quite some time, I think correctly, is you can look at interest rates and you could say there's really no reason for the home builders to do what they've done. But then you look under the surface and the supply demand imbalances have been there for quite some time. Quite frankly, they still are. And the names that we talk about, Pulte Homes, DHI, Toll Brothers, all those stocks are making new all-time highs, which is remarkable in this environment. But when you really look at it, it makes a lot of sense. So I think we've done a good job there. By the way, there's going to be a point where you definitely want to pull the ripcord on those things and probably go the other way. I just don't think we're there yet. Another thing we've done a decent job is some of these big cap pharma names, which continue to grind higher. Eli Lilly had a little bit of difficulty earlier this year, but it got back on its horse on the back of a lot of fundamentals and a lot of really exciting stories. So I think that's still intact. In terms of energy, and I'm curious as to what Danny thinks about this, energy's been a little bit confusing the majority of this year. There have been times when it feels like the energy underlying stocks are getting back on their horse, other times when they feel like everybody's fleeing it. I think one of the things that hurt the energy sector the first half of the year was a rotation out into some of these big cap names. But I would submit, Danny, and I don't, I'm not saying I'm right, but I think the supply-demand imbalances are still there. I think the valuations for a lot of these names are still pretty compelling. And I still think we're going to get a back half of this year where energy stocks surprise people to the upside. The supply-demand, I agree with you, is evened out here, obviously. I think that the market, the oil prices are trying to tell us that there's a slowdown going on in China or it's not growing as much as we thought it was going to come out. So that's obviously part of it. I would separate the stocks themselves a little bit from the underlying commodity here. I mean, is that these are these were defensive names, as I mentioned, coming into the year, and people were overweight energy and banks coming into the start of the year. And I think it's going to take a little bit more to get convince them to come out of some of these other names and come into energy. But that being said, Guy, I think that's a natural buyer of these stocks is some type of rotation within the markets that I think will happen. And I think as we get through kind of second quarter earnings report, I think the energy companies are going to look decent again. 
I think it's very hard to handicap what's really going on in the black market in Russia. What's really going, right? It's just very difficult to see what's happening with these OPEC plus production cuts. What's, and then the slowdown in Europe. There's so many pieces of this that are hard to imagine. Now, the good part about I'm happy for people in Europe was that natural gas prices during the big months never accelerated like they could have. That would have been an absolute destruction. Forget about the stock market. It would have just been horrible for people. And those kind of ebbed, right? Energy stocks, I separate from the commodity. I think there's a level of the commodity if you're comfortable. I'm making up a number here. $65 in oil. Yeah, it is 66 I think you, bucks. Yeah, yeah I, yep. I think you can own these stocks. I don't think you're going to get hurt in them. It's just, they're just not sexier. You make a great point, Tanny, about what people were overweight and what expectations were for financials and for energy. It was like everything that wasn't those two groups didn't work last year. And so when you think about how they've underperformed this year, I think you probably take a shot at crude oil first, holding those sorts of mid-60 levels. To your point, it feels like it really is discounting a whole heck of a lot. Guy, to your point, on China. And when you think about what's materialized, what hasn't, look at like letter X, this is US steel. Look at Alcoa, look at FCX and copper. They're not screaming like China is that engine of growth, but crude oil certainly does feel like it discounts a whole heck of a lot. So that one, it looks really interesting to me for the second half here. And I'll just say this guy, you started out by talking about the things that have really worked, the high growth, high valuation, the multiple expansion, the tech things. It seems like it could be a good pair in a way, if you want to short some of those as a basket and get long some of the more defensive. And I also throw a healthcare in there because I feel like other than a handful of names that you just mentioned on the pharma space, the group doesn't act particularly well. It's interesting. Some of the other things we talk about, regional banks, and I'm looking at the KRE, it's probably trading around 41 and a half or so. I think it bottomed around 34 and a half ish. The rally has been somewhat muted, but it's happening. And that's probably led to some of the strength in small caps to the extent that IWM has had a decent little move to the upside. I'm still of the belief, and again, I'm not suggesting I'm right, but I think given the fact that the inversion has gotten back to where we are in the twos, tens, and the yield curve continues to move on a variety of different durations, there's another shooter drop here in regional banks. I'm not sure what it's going to be. I will say, even if it's not necessarily individual name that sort of blows up, if you think about the environment that they find themselves in, how are they going to compete with some of the larger banks when regulation is coming? capital requirements are more stringent. And obviously, the access to capital is probably not there. I think these regional banks are going to be hamstrung. And oh, by the way, I think there's probably another shoe to drop on an individual name. So I look at this bounce and I understand it to a point. I think in the absence of bad news, I understand why KRE is getting off the mat a little bit and subsequently IWM as well. But that doesn't mean I would submit, Dan, that there's this all clear sign in the banks, specifically regionals. But some of these larger banks as well. So next Friday, you're going to be listening to the On The Tape podcast. It's going to be July 14th. And we're going to have, what, four or five, Danny, of those money center banks reporting. And so we definitely, and you guys were talking about this. I think it was Morgan Stanley maybe about a month ago. They had this regional banking conference, and we saw a lot of downgrades to guidance from the regionals. It'll be really interesting to see because JP Morgan came storming back, right, to its pre-regional banking crisis. Highs didn't break out, still below its all-time in 52-week highs or 18-month highs, that sort of thing. So it'll be interesting to see what expectations are, Guy. Your point about the KRE picking its head up a little bit, despite some of the larger names in that space, 
already downgrading guidance for the current period. I don't think you're going to get a lot of visibility for the back half of the year. I don't think they're just going to do that. But it'll be interesting to see how some of the laggards in the Large Money Centers Act, we've been talking about Bank America, we've been talking about Citigroup, they have better valuation support, but they don't act that well. You know what I mean? And maybe this has to do, Guy, with what the inversion is saying and the length of the inversion. Maybe it has actually something you can extrapolate from what we're seeing from some of these more, I guess, economically sensitive sort of groups like energy and materials. Listen, it remains a really difficult environment. The only thing I think that the S&P, if it was up 5% on the year, not 15% on the year, I think that we'd say that makes sense after being down 22. And if you and there you go. And then you have an S&P equal weight that's up 5%. And so again, that brings us back to those handful of names. I think Guy called them the Magnificent Seven. And I think that's catching Guy. So well, whoa, no, whoa, I'm kidding. I, listen, I'm out here. I'm, I'm out here. I know. Here just keep it cool. Enjoying it. myself. I, I mean, it's a nice weather. I don't know what's going on in New York City. And, you know you what? Know, what's going on in New York City? It's like a hundred freaking degrees and the humid as hell, and there's no water around this guy to jump into. So hopefully, Danny you Moses, hit the beach. were you a fan of the movie The Magnificent Seven? I want to say it came out in 1961. I Don't never at saw me it. if I'm wrong. I never saw it. It was remade though, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Re yes, it was. Re forget about the remake. The original one, I think it was based off a book or a movie called The Seventh Samurai or something like that. But as we've mentioned a number of times, the cast in that movie was outstanding. Now, you're going to get mad at me for bringing this up. I didn't bring it up. Dan Nathan decided he wanted to tweak me a little bit here on this podcast. So I will say that the Magnificent Seven is now some moniker that they're giving to the Magnificent Seven stocks out there. And it infuriates me to no end because you've bastardized what is a fantastic movie. But I'll tell you this, Danny Moses, the great Steve McQueen, we mentioned Robert Shaw earlier, another actor that stole every movie that was in, Steve McQueen in the Magnificent Seven, Yul Brenner, a James Coburn, a Robert Vaughn, a Charles Bronson, and of course, Eli Wallach played the villain in that. A great movie with a better soundtrack. Back to you, Dan Nathan, since you brought it up. You look at the Apple, it's $3 trillion, it's up 50% of the year. You look at Microsoft, it's $2.5 trillion, it's up 42% of the year. You look at Google and Amazon, they're more than a trillion. They're up 40 and 54% respectively. We don't have to get to the NVIDIA as a trillion dollars, but that's up nearly 200% of the year. At some point, Something has to give here. Meta, which is approaching seven, eight hundred billion, is up 150% of the year. It just, I mean, but it's not, we're not talking about like dot com stuff or anything like that. We're talking about companies that have basically a few trillion dollars in revenues and are very profitable among them. This is one of the biggest trading mistakes I've made in a very long time. And one of the important points I want to make about a big trading mistake is it can lead to investing mistakes. If you have big holes in your trading, that means you have. You have less investable capital to do the smart things, the long-term things, the dollar cost averaging things. And to me, I was like a moth to flame to NVIDIA into Tesla. And so it, I'm just of the belief when you have two companies like that, that sold off 75% from their all-time highs in 2021, they can do it again. Okay. You know what I mean? And they've done it in my face now over a three month period. And so again, it goes back to, I think it's the Buffett saying the market can remain irrational longer than you can stay solvent. And I'm bringing this point up again, not to sound like just a broken record, but bad trading can lead to bad investing outcomes. Even if you've ring fenced, which I do, okay, and define my risk in bad risk management can lead to just less investable capital, which will basically put you in the hole longer term. Let me just say, people use prices as reinforcement on the up and on the downside to their beliefs. And I've always believed, I talked about this before, if you're short a name and it goes down, it gets smaller. 
by nature, because unless you're adding to the position on the win, it's getting smaller. You're making less and less, obviously, right, on a percentage basis. If you own a stock and you just feel like married to it, like this is the greatest thing, you're feeling good about it, you have to separate that emotion also from the upside. And that's the part where I think, so now you're having people, economists, strategists, doing victory laps, looking back at the first half of the year. Neil Dutta wrote, I guess you call it an op-ed on Business Insider. Tell He's us who Neil Dutta Renaissance is. Renaissance Macro, yeah. works for Jeff DeGraff, great guy, Jeff. It's a good firm. They've been around several years. Neil actually worked for Rosie at Merrill Lynch years ago. And I don't remember what his stance was then and so forth. But you know, you come and you look back and you say, oh, all the recessionistas, as he called them, oh, there was just noise, fear-mongering and all this stuff. And I put it back to them. I say, okay, who came into the first half of the year and obviously said there was a lot of tumultuous things which were occurring. But is it just the market that makes you look back and say that the fear-mongering, whatever was wrong? We were pointing out inversion of the yield curve to me. It's telling you something. And I've always said that fixed income is smarter than equity. It always has been. It always will be. The people that do more work in that area. As a matter of fact, in 2005 and 2006, the fixed income markets, not necessarily rates, although they came on later, were already showing you the stresses in the system that people in equity land decided to ignore because it's easy to ignore. But to go back and say that these things aren't happening, again, do go off of a cliff? No. But don't use the stock market level to go back and paint a picture that all these things we're tracking, which I think are crucial in the long run, we talk about poker and card speak, are going to matter. And so it's easy to go back and, oh yeah, I miss it. So now someone like Neil, is, and he's a smart guy, is arguing that you're gonna, it's going to make it even worse if you don't get in now, if you're, not, if you're still listening to them now. To me, every day is a new underwriting opportunity on the overall market and then on individual stocks. And if you think that on an individual underwriting basis, whether it's the Magnificent Seven or other names which have run, if you look at them empirically and just decide, all right, I'm not going to put all the noise. Are this something you want to rebuy? Tesla's in the news today. It's one of the seven, right? So let's talk about the orders. They delivered 20,000 more vehicles than people thought. We don't know. The, now, that's 20,000 more on a 400 and something thousand, whatever. We don't know what the margins are. That's fine, whatever. But to move incrementally on a market cap like that or to think that's some genius it was plan like eight percent right the day so after they again i'm not that. i'm not really involved in it i'm involved in a little bit but not a lot i just it's noise to me but my point is this i said this before on nvidia when they had the incremental orders that happened in the following quarter you move the market cap by what on it's a similar mindset of oh i knew it ask the question why is it moving higher delivery because it's the tax credit and that's great so well, 96 percent of their sales were model three yeah 96 percent of the sales were the threes and the whys right we know what what happened and this company, again, I'm not, I'll do the Tesla part this time, Dan. So Go you for it. Okay. How about it? Is it's always been supported by the tax credits. It's always been the part that from the very beginning, everything they've done, selling these, all these emission credits, whatever it is to all these companies globally, it's been a huge, good, good for them. They were early. They get credit for it, right? Market share is dropping, et cetera. I'm not even talking about Tesla specifically. Do what you want to do with yeah, Tesla. The psychology of What I'm saying that, is it's yeah. the psychology yeah, yeah, of yeah. it. And in a vacuum, when you see something like that come out, and all I'm telling people is, I'm willing to miss all that. Forget about being shorted. I'm willing to miss things on the long side because when the music stops, when it finally does, and we've seen in the last few weeks, you've seen a little bits and pieces. Yeah, it's been by the dip a little bit, obviously, in some of these names. Tell me where the downside is on some of these names as they roll over, right? The NVIDIAs of the world, if the Tesla, where do you say, oh, that valuation? And that's the problem. And I will that's always have that problem. High points. And I always have that. Anyway, yeah. I just want to make one point here on the Tesla, though. Q1, they delivered 440,000 cars. That was a disappointment. The margins were really bad. They were lower than 20%. And last year, the margins were 25.5%-ish or something like that. So Q2, the number that they just delivered, 466. On a sequential basis, that stock, the next day, 
after that report, because it was slightly better than expectations, gained more market cap than like GM and Ford combined. So like to your point, there, there's a mania going on. And again, listen, I'm not naked short in the stock. I've said this again and again. I have good money after bad as it relates to puts or the inverse ETF and all that sort of stuff. That's fine. That's bad rest management. That's bad it's trading. It's a great white shark. Whatever. Like we talk a lot about this stuff. And if I'm going to be the guy on CNBC's Fast Money or on our podcast or whatever, pointing out why I don't think it's as rosy as everyone says, then I have to have my money where my mouth is, okay? But it's been a bad trading thing. But understand how absolutely insane it is that this company has a $900 billion market cap. And I'm on lots of mailing lists of guys who are doing a lot of independent research and they're talking about AI and they're talking about the robots and they're talking about full self-drive. It all seems like a cult. It all seems crazy to me. So to your point, Danny, you don't have to buy it. But when I'm talking about being bearish on it, I kind of have to put my money where my mouth is. And it's been really painful, guy. Janet Yellen, she's on her way, she might be there now, to China, which is interesting because she's obviously looking to, I want to say, ratchet down some of the rhetoric. But every day, some another story comes out seemingly, the latest one being the United States is looking to restrict China's access to cloud computing to protect advanced technology. This has been going on in a number of different areas for quite some time. Then, of course, the Chinese are going to retaliate in some way. I'm sure they're going to impose restrictions on metals used in commercial in advanced chip manufacturing. So we say something, the Chinese come back with more rhetoric. At a certain point, it no longer is rhetoric. Things start to happen. And I don't know, maybe it's me, Danny. Maybe I'm just looking at this and trying to read tea leaves that are just not there. But U.S.-China relations are as strained as they've been probably in decades, if not longer than that. And the fact that the market seemingly does not care is fascinating to me. And I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago on On The Tape podcast, but I'll say it again. I want to say it's close to a month and a half or two months ago. NVIDIA made a point of saying how they were concerned about U.S.-China relations for obvious reasons. So this is not getting better anytime soon. I'm telling you, Blinken went over there. He said, we're making progress, but progress takes time. I agree. Now they're sending Janet Yellen over there. There's hope that there's some Biden-Chi summit at the end of this year. Maybe that happens. But nothing's going to come from this. And this tension that we're currently in the midst of, in my opinion, is just going to get worse. At a certain point, it has ramifications for the stock market. So within the same day or two days of China limiting, you pointed out mineral, I think it's gallium and germanium, right, which are used in chips, right? So they're saying, all right, if you, we're not going to buy your chips, we're not going to give you the ingredients to make chips or something like that, right? Well, a nickel for EV batteries. Right, I mean, and that's then massive she's saying, basically talking out of both sides of the mouth, saying we need to open borders and everybody needs to stop this thing. I mean, they're sending mixed signals because that tells me that they're not in a great spot here. So another mixed signal guy, and I don't know how it gets bounced in, but let me just say something else completely not related to that at all as I sit here and I'm watching the two-year approach 5% again and the 10-year get back towards 4 some of the bulls out there will point in the economist saying, I told you the lag impact wouldn't be there. Bullshit. It's here and it's happening and it's in real time. I don't know what people are looking at. What? And well, again, look at employment, though. That, no, that's I'm not talking one, about employment. I'm not the talking, lag effect would actually like. It will. It would. And it is, in my opinion. My, my point is this. I just remember the same argument in kind of 2000. It's a financialized economy. You cannot escape it. We will say, oh, there's no lending pullback. Oh, look. Yes, you're right. Employment has been strong. I go back to who we had on Bianco when he came on here a couple, what, six weeks ago or something like that. And he made the comment, which still is sitting with me and resonating, that the recovery in this economy is different than anything you're going to see, right? Because the stay at home is somewhat permanent. All the things are just have changed and you have to get used to the new, new. When you extrapolate 
home sales and stuff. Let's talk about what that really means, right? Last time we went through a rate height cycle and it created a crisis, you had a lot of variable rate mortgages or short dated mortgages that were coming up for reset. You couldn't avoid it, right? You had two year, three year arms that were originated in 2003 and four that were by definition, and that's what fixed income markets saw. This is different. Rates went up so far that you golden handcuff people into their homes. So if the trend is to move out of the cities, potentially and go into the suburbs and buy a home for the first time, people, it's, you're making a life decision to buy a home, to leave a city, so to speak, and you're going to take out a mortgage of five, six, seven percent on a quote new home. It's the new homes that is why the builders have done so well. That's their main business. They don't want to carry inventory. I'm not saying it's not a positive. What I'm saying is every recovery and every cycle is a little bit different. So I get it. Bulls can pull from it. Great. There is a lot of demand for inventory of new homes that are being built. There's no existing home inventory really to speak of, right? Because we just mentioned on the overall business, on the overall economy, high rates by definition have to have an impact. And the rate of bankruptcies of private companies is accelerating. You can ignore it if you want. And yes, maybe they employ 50, 100, 200 people. And eventually that starts to matter. That seems to way. So guys, sorry to go off on the China thing, but as I'm sitting here, I'm watching the two-year yield is your intent. I'm sorry, but that has an impact. And one of the biggest inputs and in how you value a stock back to your business school days, which no one's using that in these markets these days, that's your input. What is your discount rate? What is the risk-adjusted return you're willing to receive? And the last thing I'll say is we've been telling people to get into the bond market, right? We've been telling people to buy the twos or whatever. You can, you're going to get a nice yield here that's been going on for twos quite some time. and twos. Anyway, that's my call late 2021. Sorry, I went no, off no, on a tangent. One, one thing I think is different about this recovery, and I really, I actually really enjoyed listening to that walk down memory lane. I guess what's different is that the Fed's balance sheet doubled from the pre-COVID levels, right, to where it was just at its highs when they talked about quantitative tightening. And then to your point, 20 minutes ago, you just mentioned that flood of liquidity that we saw in March. So Fed funds has gone to 5%. Inflation in that same period has gone from the CPI at its highs in 2022 from 9.1% to 4.1%, okay? And we still have a Fed balance sheet that's north of $8 trillion. So I listened to our good friends, your old partners, okay, Porter and Vinny on Ted Seide's podcast, Capital Allocators, and everyone should listen. That was a great conversation with those guys. They were talking about there's corporate America's balance sheets are in great shape. You know what I mean? So when you think about that, I think it's an important point that you just make about private bankruptcies. And that's something that we've been tracking a little bit. And those are the ones that are further away. And what just happened in the regional banks and everything like that, that hurts them. But corporate America, the large publicly traded companies, they're well capitalized. Like they're doing okay. And so to me, I guess that's maybe what's a little different right now. And so maybe that's one of the reasons why these lag effects are taking longer to take hold. And then we have this AI frenzy that has caused people to just not give a shit to your point about valuations and discount rates and all the like. And then if you think about the unemployment rate, why this is important with rates where they are, because the housing market is still on fire because of all these weird dynamics going back to what Bianco's saying. So there is a way to explain this away right now a little bit, like some of the irrational valuation levels of housing prices and stock price. I think this UPS potential strike is going to be a bigger deal than people realize. It's 340,000 workers. Their contract expires, I want to say, on July 31st. Apparently, negotiations, the word they're using, collapsed. We'll see what happens. This would be the largest strike if it were to happen in the United States since 1959. So just keep an eye on that. That's something we'll obviously be watching here. The other thing I want to talk about quickly, I don't know how big a deal it is and what it necessarily means, but over the last couple of days, obviously Facebook is launching something called, what do they call it? Threads. Threads. It's something that I will not be part of, but it's not meant for me. But 
to compete with Twitter. And some of the people that I've listened to or read suggest that this actually could compete with Twitter on a pretty high level. So again, I don't necessarily know what it means for Twitter. I don't know what it necessarily means subsequently for Elon Musk and Tesla, but that's something out there as well. And by the way, Facebook is rallying seemingly on the back of that. So here we are, we're three quarters of a trillion dollar market cap again. So at its lows, okay, late last year was down nearly 80% from its all-time highs in November, 2021, when they rebranded and refocused their company they called it Meta. They were going to the Metaverse. They spent the next year and a half dismantling that whole strategy shift, cutting tens of thousands of jobs, cutting costs wherever they could. And so when you think about what Mark Zuckerberg has been a genius at doing as copying, whether it was Snap and Reels and with TikTok and the list goes on and on, when you think about their install base of 3 billion users, and when you think about Twitter maxed out, I think, at 350 monthly active users, and they were never monetizing. Their average revenue per user was, I think, at its most 3 or $4 versus, let's say, 4x that of Meta or whatever at their highs. So you get the point here. Listen, could it put a fork in Twitter? I, I have not been on Twitter in months. I just don't use it, and I just don't see a whole heck of a lot of folks using it. I, advertisers have moved away. So if Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook or Meta really want to make a go at this kind of live like live news space or whatever they have the users there they have the advertisers there they'll be able to quickly get above i think twitter was doing at its as high as a year or so ago five and a half billion dollars in revenue they're going to be able to move into this space if they want to i'm shocked that yahoo hasn't done it that that all these places that have huge traffic have not made a move google i would say another google had google plus which was a huge failure but even if Threads is not ultimately that successful, okay? Never garners the sort of social significance that a Twitter had as this kind of town square or whatever. I think it will be immensely more financially stable and profitable than Twitter ever will be. And I think that is something that is going to be like a huge problem for Elon Musk that still has $13 billion in debt. And they have basically probably at best 50% of the revenue that they had just a year ago. Well, he's knocking off people, obviously, who criticize Tesla at this point. And I'm not on Twitter that much anymore, but the yeah. people that I follow, like they put out a report on Tesla, even if it's factual, they're gone. Like you're knocking off some key people who had followers. And so good old free speech. Oh, you included, Dan. Well, obviously. yeah, free speech. Well, you Apple, did. Uh, yeah, no, but it's again, but it's, like that. it's a hard site to navigate. I'm not just saying that because it's Elon Musk. You can't you have to search for things now to find them. And the stuff I'm getting, these bots are coming in. It's nonstop. It's really annoying. And yeah, I agree. But this is fun to watch when you think about it because Snap never really got, they were never going to be at a billion monthly active users. Obviously, Twitter wasn't. At the end of the day, Google has, or Alphabet has a bunch of billion monthly active user properties. Facebook's been able to do it multiple times now, obviously with Instagram and WhatsApp and the like here. It's just been really hard. Other than TikTok, no one's been able to do it. Why is Meta rallying like this? Listen, if a TikTok ban, guy, to your point about China, we keep ratcheting up the tit for tat with the old economy stuff, with the chip stuff or whatever, like geopolitical sort of stuff. Ultimately, TikTok, for privacy reasons, could easily get banned. And if these guys are able to make any inroads on what Twitter's core business is, you would think that would be a huge benefit, not just Instagram, not just Reels, but obviously this threads thing. So it's something interesting to watch. And I will just say this, expected revenue growth of double digits, expecting earnings growth of double digits. The stock's trading about 19 times next year of 2024. That's a market multiple. Like, why wouldn't you pay that? I'm not buying it here. But if they were ever basically to take anything away from the Twitter thing. It, it was a value sense. stock meta for like two months. Remember, hang on there below 100 bucks. Yeah, it was, it was trading, trading like 15 times. Less, like maybe that. even a little yeah, bit yeah, less, yeah. but yeah. yeah. 
Amanda Diaz solicited questions from you. So upon our return, we will effort to answer those. So stick around. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually with an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers their community oversees an astounding 48 trillion dollars and 16 trillion dollars in assets respectively iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events we invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one -on -one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Welcome back to the On The Tape podcast. Dan Nathan, Guy Adami, and the great Danny Moses. We solicited questions, and we got a bunch, and we picked a few that we think can resonate because they're somewhat broad. We don't want to get too granular. First question is from Jay Sloan. Without getting too macro on you, for longer-term investors, inflation and currency devaluation appear to loom as huge risks given the confluence of extreme levels of U.S. debt, a newer rising interest rate environment driving up debt service being coupled with a record-setting future entitlements to United States citizens. Do you foresee this unwinding to take the continued path of least resistance, that's more QE and inflation devaluing the debt and entitlements, or a hard line pushing interest rates higher and ultimately a stiff break of the economy? I am going to take a shot at this. My answer is probably going to be different than yours, Danny, but here we go. I think for the first time in a long time, and not that I've met Jerome Powell, I don't know him. In October of 2018, I was so enamored by Jerome Powell because he was in the seat for about three or four months. He was newly appointed Fed chair. I guess you get appointed or voted, whatever the hell it is. And he actually came out and said, look, party's over. I'm paraphrasing. We're going to normalize rates and we're going to reduce our balance sheet. And then he used the term autopilot. So he was new to the job. And the market sold off 19.9% from Halloween until Christmas Eve. That forced him, along with some browbeating by the Trump administration, to reverse course. But I am convinced that Jerome Powell has some Paul Volcker in him, and I think he really wants to slay this dragon. And quite frankly, I think he's done a pretty good job in navigating, speaking to highlighting and telegraphing what they've been doing. Now, whether or not the market wants to listen is another thing, but I think he's going to be a hardliner. And I think he realizes the path that we were on for 13, 14 years was going to send us to a point of no return. And we might be there now, 
but I do think he's going to be a hardliner. I do think he was going to risk a deep recession in order to get us back on track. I just, Danny, don't think the market has taken that lead yet. Considering they had no idea, they had some idea, they didn't think it was a big deal that Silicon Valley Bank would be imploded or that these mark-to-market issues even existed at these banks. And what did the first thing they did was do a mea culpa, basically, and then do whatever they had to do to rescue these banks and the economy and marry them and merger them with other larger banks. So that was unforeseen. So the answer to the last question part of and go backwards here is that as far as taking a hard line, I believe, and I'm in agreement with you, Guy, that they're trying to take a hard line. And if we get a market swoon, I would not look to the Fed near term, certainly at 5 or even 10% of the market, to comment that they're going to be there to, quote, save the day. They're going to hold their nose and ignore that for a little while. However, we have a situation that we haven't seen yet, which is a large institution maybe gets in trouble because of something on the balance sheet that's not being looked at that we don't even know about. It goes haywire. Rest assured that they will be there to come up with another Ackerman for another name. And therein lies the Fed put or the moral hazard issue that we all have. Now, to the first part of Jay's question, my horse fan, by the way, of course, we're watching the currencies. Of course, I watch the yen intently. This carry trade has been going on for decades, right? The yen's back to weakening to 144, 145. We're starting to hit levels in various currencies, euro yen, where something's got to give. It's starting to have an impact on the local economies themselves, on importing and exporting. It only goes so far. So in that instance, something could easily break there. But again, as we saw last week in Portugal, as the four horsemen or whatever Rushmore people were sitting around the room, right? They're all going to coordinate this and no one wants to see this go off of a cliff. And so the issue with debt service is there and it's getting larger. The issue with all the things you're saying, I've been watching, fortunately. It hasn't meant anything yet for the stock market, but I fully expect these things to boil over and something, quote, to break again, right? Or something new that we were not expecting will come. And the question is going to be, will the Fed be there? And at this moment, Guy, to your first comment on this question, I think they're going to try to hold firm and ignore the stock market. If that's all it is, it's just to sell off in assets for the time being, unless something really cracks. And then I think we're dealing with a Fed put at some level, but is it, it's below 4,000, in my opinion, on the S&P. Yeah, I agree with that. I think if there is, in fact, a Fed put in the stock market, I think that Fed put is significantly lower. I would submit it wherever 4,400 in the S&P. It's probably 1,500-ish S&P handles from where you are. The Fed put is going to come in the form, in my opinion, in an unemployment rate that approaches 5%. We're not close now. I'm just saying that's one of the levels. The other thing would be if credit were to deteriorate in a meaningful way. I think the stock market is probably far down on that list. Janine asks us the following question. With all the talk of taking profits, how do you shield yourself from tax implications? Isn't it counterproductive to sell, pay taxes, and to try to reinvest? So I'm going to take a stab at this, Danny. This is a very difficult, I don't want to say game. This is a very difficult thing, this trading, investing, very complicated. I think when you add tax ramifications on top, you make a difficult game that much more difficult. There's a scene in the movie 48 Hours when Eddie Murphy's in a bar and he pats down some redneck and he pulls out a wad of cash. And he said, where do you get this from? And the guy said, tax refund. And Eddie said, bullshit, you're too stupid to have a job. And that resonates with me. And I bring it up because it's very hard to do what we're trying to do. And then when you throw on top of it, tax ramifications and getting in if you have to pay taxes on something, I've always said that's sort of a high-class problem to have. If that's what your concern is, it almost, in my opinion, hamstrings you or paralyzes you 
from sometimes doing the right thing. There might be a stock where you know in your heart is probably a just a screaming sale at current levels, but you don't want to do it because you're going to have to pay taxes on the gains. You know what? Taxes are a high-class problem. And I think when you introduce them to the whole trading psyche, I think it makes a very difficult thing that much more difficult. I think this kind of sums up the market a little bit too, right? A lot of these are short-term gains. They happen very quickly. That's not natural either. So it's not like you picked off a stock at the bottom and it ran up. There are those one-offs kind of things that can occur. But if those are the questions you're being asked, and by the way, I wish I had to think about this more, but I fortunately or unfortunately will have some lost carry forwards probably that I can deal with. I never let taxes really make the decision. It's short term. If I'm being honest with myself on a name and it's up 100% in a period of what, so you pay your 25, 30% in taxes, whatever. And I realize short term and long term gains are different. It's different for everybody, but you might have losses to offset it that you've names you're sitting on that you say to yourself, oh, I just want to get even, but be honest with yourself. If the company's just a value trap and it's never going to rally, sell that one for a loss to offset some of that gain. But just being honest with yourself, a stock can drop 50% and you'll ask yourself, I could have saved 20% of that 50 if I had sold it. So I don't let that be the driver, um, but I totally understand if you're going to try to quote, get back in and time it. And I'm not going to, well, this is not financial advice. There's wash sale rules, obviously 30 days and things like that. We're not going to go into that, those type of strategies, but I never let taxes be an indication of how I would behave in terms of investing. Right. And I appreciate you saying that neither one of us, the three of us are financial advisors. We're not licensed to do it and we don't pretend to be that. So obviously you want to consult with those individuals. I'm just talking about it, just the mental aspect of this and how it makes what we try to do that much more difficult. This is a question from Kashif. What do you think would happen if the market never corrects and you're still waiting for the correction down to 4,000 or so, but you never get it? market continues to make new highs. I guess there's a scenario where that could happen. The market could continue on its merry way. I would submit from my experience doing this, it's just, in my opinion, it's just a matter of time and there's an inevitability to all this. I have been wrong in terms of it's not happening yet. The lag effect that I think, again, to use the word, is inevitable has not come, but it doesn't mean it's not coming. The, the concern that I have, Danny, is with each passing day, and with each day the markets grinds higher, I think, to use the word now, the third time, the inevitability of what I think is going to happen is going to be that much worse. Yeah, I think looking at the S&P versus looking at individual stocks, two different skill sets, right? We focus on the S&P 500 because it's more broad. That being said, we know how top-heavy it's been this year. And so effectively what you're saying is, can the Magnificent Seven that we talked about on the show continue to do what they're doing? I guess they can continue. It's hard to see them just going up a lot more from here. I do think we will end up getting a shot. But that being said, there's individual names probably that sit here today that maybe buys in and of their own. So you don't sit around when you can buy quality potentially at a fair price, whether it's in the energy sector, whether it's even in the banking sector, whether it's in the healthcare sector, whatever. So yes, we talk about the S&P 500 a lot, but again, it's just, a, it's just an indice like everything else. And I do believe that we will get that correction. But then again, if there's stocks that are attractive within the S&P 500, I wouldn't wait for the correction if you think that stocks at fair value. On this podcast, we fielded questions. Danny and Dan mentioned the Magnificent Seven just to try to agitate me. We obviously talked about a number of things on the market front. But the most important thing that I take from this is our brief yet important discussion of the great Robert Shaw. Uh, you may recall Robert Shaw from Russia with Love. He was in some great movies. Obviously, we mentioned The Sting. 
his portrayal of Quint in Jaws, legendary. The taking of Pelham, one, two, three, as Danny knows. The man's Show me the way to go home. Tired and I want to go to bed. That's how you should end this right now, guy, with that. It's an homage. And I agree with that. And by the way, he was also in The Deep. And I think in terms of the market, we are now in the deep end of the pool. So on this July day, I wish you all a great holiday shortened week. Danny Moses will be joining me on Monday. Danny Moses, Monday in studio. Channel 132. XM, Danny. 132 Business Radio, 12 noon. It's going to be me, Danny, and the callers. It's going to be a shitload of fun. I look forward to it. I thank you all for listening. Enjoy the weekend. We are 5,000 people. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.